Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for Reflections, Dreams, and Memories with Michael Lerner. Okay, well, welcome, everybody. So glad to have you here. The new school uh, has been going now for 10 years, and we're going to celebrate it um, sometime in the spring, I think. Uh, or in the fall? We haven't decided, really. Fall. fall, probably. Okay. And I really want to thank Kira for her amazing work holding it together. And um, we've done about how many podcasts now? Oh, yeah. I can't, I think it's 250, isn't it? Around 250. Yeah. 250. Yeah. Um, counting all the other yeah. events. Yeah, right. And uh, so 10 years, 200. So it's been about 25 a year. Um, but I never, I've always uh, done conversations with other people. I've never done, this is the first time I've done one myself. Um, so this is a conversation with myself. And, um, and the idea was that when I know what I'm going to talk about in advance, there's a part of me that gets bored or feels constricted by having to prepare something so literally last night, I didn't know what I was going to talk about. Uh, I had various competing thoughts, but I decided ultimately to talk about a theme that's been with me since childhood. Um, and uh, if I gave the talk a title, it would be, um, How Can We Live in the Age of Extinctions? So... Um, I'll start by uh, reading. This theme has been with me since I was a little child in many ways, but I'll start by reading from uh, a piece I wrote for Yes! magazine in March 2003. And I was quoting from a new, at that point, publication called Conservation Medicine, Ecological Health and Practice. And here's the quote. In the future, the legend of the great dying will be recited to the children of the third planet. It happened thusly. First, there was the great explosion in human numbers and in technological prowess. In 200 Earth years, all the wild places were degraded or destroyed. Next, the chemicals and gases released by agriculture and industry impaired the health of the surviving species and changed the climate. The great heat then occurred, as did the second great flood. Simultaneously, thousands of species of plants and animals were transported across natural barriers and became invasive species in their new surroundings. This was known as the Great Mixing. Near the end of that era, there were many new plagues, the great sickness that ravaged the weakened, unprepared human beings and other species." Our ancestors learned too late the simple karmic law of ecology. All is interdependent and all is interconnected. As bad philosophers continued to debate whether human beings were part of nature or its butcher, a spiral of dreadful causation erased this illusory dualism, and it became evident that the destiny of humanity on earth was to be both victim and executioner of creation. At the end, all earthly beings became joined in an intimate, slow dance of death. 
So I went on to say in this piece, and I'll just read a few pieces of it. Scientists know with clarity this, our deepest truth. We live in an age of extinctions. This is the sixth great spasm of extinctions in the history of our planet. We are driving biodiversity back 65 million years to its lowest level of vitality since the age, end of the age of dinosaurs. Climate change, ozone depletion, toxic chemicals, habitat destruction, and invasive or infectious species are five of the principal drivers. Now, I'll come back to that, but that was the list in 2003, which came from the great naturalist E.O. Wilson. Climate change, ozone depletion, toxic chemicals, habitat destruction, and invasive species. None of this is controversial in conservation biology, the parent discipline of conservation medicine. Less known are the future possible drivers. Bill Joy, chief scientist for Sun Microsystems, proposed this in his historic Wired magazine article, The Future Does Not Need Us, that biotechnology, nanotechnology, and robotics hold the tragic promise of creating unnatural entities that can self-replicate out of control. Nature is already being flooded with genetically modified organism, organisms from uh, agricultural biotechnology. The, com the comparable modification of humanity's germline draws even closer. And in fact, just recently, uh, the scientists were given permission to start working with human germline experiments so that we can actually modify human beings the way we've modified plants. Uh, how can we save as much life as possible in this age of, of extinctions? Um, some conservative commentators scoff at the question. They believe there's no real threat to life from any technologies other than nuclear, chemical, or biological warfare. The enthusiasts of a post-human future, by contrast, quite happily accept the possibility that the future has little need for carbon-based life forms and actively look forward to the convergence of the computer, the robot, and genetically modified post-humans. The question of how much life we can save in this age of extinctions has real meaning only for those of us who neither celebrate nor embrace the end of nature. We are, we should recognize, the true conservatives of our time. We are conservative in the root sense that we are dedicated to the conservation of the tried and true ecosystems and life forms of the earth. We are conservative in that we want our children and their children to be genetically unmodified, to live surrounded by nature in all its glory, and to live lightly and justly on earth. We are the believers in natural law in the deepest sense, and we regard the question of who and what can be saved in this age of extinction as the greatest religious, philosophical, and practical question of our time. I believe that the path to saving all that we can of life on Earth, the path of what David Orr called the ecological renaissance, lies with the emerging environmental health movement. Um, and... Um, Uh, I believe, for example, that the right of women to gestate and breastfeed their babies toxic-free will be one of the great human rights issues of the new millennium. I believe that as science linking human health to environmental health grows stronger, our experience of our personal health being affected by the environment will drive the scientific lessons deep into our consciousness. This potent combination of scientific evidence and direct personal experience of wounds inflicted upon us and those we love by a degraded environment will, I believe, energize the emerging environmental health movement, making it a global force. Um, and I went on from there. Um, 
to talk about my personal experience as a DES son. If I'd been a DES daughter, it's an endocrine-disrupting chemical, I would have had a 50% chance of a gynecological cancer. And, um, and I went on at some length about the specifics of the environmental health movement, which we, my wife, Cheryl Patton, and I, and many of the rest of us here at Commonweal have been involved in since the inception of the uh, modern environmental health movement. Uh, but, I, but here's where I think I'll go in reading from this. Millions of people around the world intuitively share this apprehension of the essential unity of life. The great Buddhist poet Thich Nhat Hanh calls this consciousness of interbeing. It is a venerable consciousness shared by many indigenous people, an ancient knowing that has been driven to the periphery of modern conscious, consciousness by industrial interests, the specialization and fragmentation of the scientific enterprise, corporate control of the global media and other forces. But interbeing is a way of knowing the world that is ineluctably returning to the center of post-postmodern discourse. The law of interbeing is, as Michael Soul so beautifully says, the simple karmic law of ecology. All is interdependent and all is interconnected. So I then went on to talk about uh, the emerging environmental health movement uh, as the prose of putting the poetry of interbeing into practice. And I said, when breast cancer patients, women with endometriosis, mother of children with asthma and birth defects, uh, and representatives of dozens of other disease tribes begin to recognize their shared interest in reducing chemical contaminants, they form a potent new social force. And when they're joined by physicians, nurses, and other health professionals, it's further amplified. I compared it to the civil rights movement as a very complex movement. And I said, since patient groups are at the heart of it, women are destined to play a central role in its leadership. Uh, and I went on to talk about environmental justice advocates and so on. So I start with that because it's a pretty good summary from 2003 of, um, of something that started for me when I was a child. Um, I'm going to read a poem now uh, that I've read before because I think poetry captures um, the power of, this is data-driven. This is speaking to our cognitive minds. But here's Gary Snyder speaking to us in a different way. It's called For the Children. Some of you may know this. The rising hills, the slopes of statistics lie before us. The steep climb of everything going up, up as we all go down. In the next century or the one beyond that, they say, our valleys, pastures, we can meet there in peace if we make it. To climb these coming crests, one word to you, to you and your children, stay together, learn the flowers, go light. Makes me cry. To climb these coming crests, one word to you, to you and your children, stay together, learn the flowers, go light. My friend Pete Myers, um, who uh, is one of the pioneers of the environmental health movement and who with Theo Colburn wrote the book called Our Stolen Future about endocrine disruptors, um, 
he has embarked uh, in a new direction. Uh, if you read his uh, extraordinary newsletter, Above the Fold, that comes out every day uh, from Environmental Health News, um, he's embarked in, and you can find it in, in Environmental Health News, um, in, in looking continuously now at the global drivers of planetary change. And, uh, and um, he participated in a, uh, in a important um, expression of this interest uh, that just took place uh, uh, February 27th to March 1st at the um, Vatican. Uh, it was a joint meeting of the Pontifical Academy of Science and the Pont Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences on biological extinction. And it just took place, and we're fortunate that if you dig into his website, there's a public document which is not being widely publicized. But nonetheless, it gives you a sense of what's happening in the sciences uh, to, this, um, to this issue that has been with us for such a long time. And um, so this is... Uh, a quote from a paper by Paul Ehrlich, who's one of the true pioneers of this area of Stanford University, and Partha Tazgupta, whose work I don't know, and I'm going to have to look at it. But um, it, the title is Why We're in the Sixth Great Extinction and What It Means for Humanity. And um, the, the little abstract reads, the whole paper is online if you get into it in Pete's uh, website. The annihilation of biological diversity is one of the most severe human-induced global environmental problems. Species and populations are being driven to extinction every year at so high a rate that the Earth's assemblage of plants and animals is now well into a sixth, sixth mass extinction episode. The most recent live planet index, get this, has estimated that wildlife abundance on the planet has dropped by 60% between 1970 and 2012. So just think about that. Wildlife abundance has dropped by 60% between 1970 and 2012. The richest biota the world has ever seen is disappearing in the blink of an eye from the perspective of geological time, and humanity is busy making it worse. So, this conversation with myself is about how we live with this. And it has um, three parts to it. One is how we live with it personally. A second is how we live with it in our communities and the organizations we're involved with. And the third is how we can contribute to aligning ourselves with forces that will save as much as possible. I want to drop back to my story because I said this goes back to childhood. When I was a little boy, uh, probably, uh, I'm 73 now, and I was probably, I don't know what, six at the time, my family had a house 
at a in North Sea, which is outside Southampton. It was at that time a lot like West Marin. Um, and um, it was on a bay called North Sea, and the pastor surrounding our house uh, was owned by a man named Stanley Howard, who we rented from. And, and North Sea was this little harbor uh, off of the, uh, the Sound, uh, Long Island Sound. And sticking out into this little harbor was something called Conscience Point, where the pilgrims landed when they came to that part of Long Island. And, um, and so we lived at a time and a place then, where, um, which has largely disappeared, where kids, my wife Shaw had the same experience in, uh, in Colorado, where you went out in the morning and you ran around all day. There was no danger. You just ran around all day and you came back for dinner, basically. And, and everything was safe, right? And, um, and so the house had a garage. And in the garage, and I actually remember this, I was building an ark because I was convinced that the flood was coming and um, I wanted to save what I could. And so my mother says, I remember the corner of the garage where I actually did this, and I remember taking several turtles from a little pond nearby and putting them in this little area that I had fenced off in the garage. And my mother said the main thing that I built for the ark was the window. That was, you know, how far I got. But so there was something about the ark story, for whatever reason, that was... Where it came from, I have no idea. But the Ark story was with me. And when we named Pacific House, the large uh, retreat house here at Commonweal, I seriously thought about calling it the Ark. Because if you look at Pacific House, it's kind of nestled on a hillside overlooking the ocean. And it looks like where the Ark might have settled, you know, at the end of the flood. Um, so this theme of um, how communities like ours build arcs around the world to save what we can in the sixth great age of extinctions has been with me since I was six years old. My father was a political philosopher named Max Lerner. My mother was a psychologist named Edna Lerner. I had the incredibly unusual and freakish experience of growing up loved by both my parents in a harmonious family um, in a period in New York City's um, uh, uh, evolution that was really a kind of a, a quite golden age for some of us uh, in that um, it was a time when uh, intellectuals could afford to live in Manhattan and uh, I was surrounded by a community of artists and philosophers and scientists and all kinds of very extraordinary people who came together at parties at my parents' house. And I ended up, um, um, so my father was a political philosopher, my mother was a psychologist, and at Harvard and Yale, I studied psychology and politics. I was the oldest son of three sons, and so I was trying to bring together my father's political work and my mother's psycho psychological work. So I ended up studying and then teaching psychology and politics at Yale. Then I came out here in 1972, leaving a tenure-track position at Yale, and uh, met a little girl who'd been diagnosed retarded 
until somebody changed her diet. And it turned out she was learning disabled, but not retarded. And I had studied child psychology at Harvard and Yale for 10 years, and nobody had ever mentioned that nutrition could change consciousness. So I left this tenure track job at Yale and uh, with uh, a friend named Carolyn Brown and uh, another friend named Tim Tabernick uh, and my wife at the time, Leslie Akoka, we started Full Circle in 1973 out in Dogtown, which was a school for kids with learning and behavior disorders. And, um, and I traveled around the country with a small grant from the Ford Foundation uh, uh, we were interested in the role of nutrition in the, uh, children's learning and behavior disorders. So I traveled around the country uh, and wrote an extended uh, essay or paper called Tomorrow's Children, The Role of Nutrition in the Learning and Behavior Disorders of Children. And uh, I discovered from doing the work at Full Circle by bringing in kids from juvenile halls all over the Bay Area, we built Full Circle from the ground up ourselves, um, I discovered that some of the kids had a dramatic response to changing their diets. Other kids had no response at all, and it was a distribution curve. Most kids were in the middle with some, some but not dramatic response. And so that essay, um, Tomorrow's Children, set the stage uh, for my work in cancer much later when I wrote the book called um, Choices in Healing, uh, Integrating the Best of Conventional and Complementary Approaches to Cancer, which was, again, uh, drawing on my journalistic background, trying to take an objective look as I looked at children about integrative approaches to cancer. So I'm juggling a little bit here, but um, as we started doing Full Circle, it became, it's one thing to read things in books, it's another thing to have a dozen kids out of juvenile hall um, looking at the role of nutrition. What becomes incredibly obvious in no time at all is that nutrition is not the only stress factor in their life. It's a stress factor. It can be a significant stress factor. It's a modifiable stress factor. But God knows they were under other stresses. Um, and, um, you know, just tremendous, horrific uh, stresses. And so I began to realize that it wasn't just nutrition. And so um, I then began to think, I came across Hans Selye's work. And Hans Selye was the great um, uh, uh, theorist of stress theory. And his view was that all these different stresses that impinged on people and animals caused psychophysiological degeneration. And it was the total environmental stress load that was involved in this degeneration. So it wasn't a big step for me to go from recognizing that nutrition was a significant modifiable stressor to realizing that what was really going on with these kids was that they were under this huge total environmental stress load. And so um, then in 1976, as many of you have heard me say this, I, uh, 75 actually, I was walking, it was two years after we started Full Circle, I was walking on Poplar Road in Bolinas, and I looked out at the site, and I had this vision of a center for healing ourselves and healing the earth. Now, notice that that vision of a center for healing ourselves and healing the earth continued my interest at Yale in psychology and politics, psychology, healing ourselves, politics, healing the earth. So um, 
that was the vision, that Commonweal's mission was to heal ourselves and heal the earth. And we continued our work with children, but we added adults as well. And so we created, in the very earliest years here, a clinic right on this floor in which we had nutrition, traditional Chinese medicine, biofeedback, and early integrative medicine physicians in 1976, 40 years ago, who were treating people who were facing chronic diseases and the developmental diseases of childhood uh, for uh, this total environmental stress load. So that was an early recognition that there was a perfect fit between the total environmental stress load and integrative medicine, uh, what is now called functional medicine as well, which is work that we continue to do. So um, I turned over full circle to Tim Tabernick. Carolyn Brown stayed on there. And I started Commonweal with, uh, also with Carolyn Brown and Burr Henneman in 1976. And, uh, and the vision of Commonweal is amazingly coherent from 76 to the present. What changed... Um, after Commonweal almost imploded about seven or eight years later when we lost all our funding, was that at first I thought it was going to be an organization with a fixed set of programs that continued. But then I realized, and this is uh, when Charlotte and I got together and uh, when I got deeply involved in integral yoga as a way of saving my life because it was a tremendously stressful period of time, and I realized that it was better to think of Commonweal not as a set of fixed programs, but as a, the language I used for a long time, I'm not sure it's the best language, was to think of it as a flexible instrument of human service. Uh, that the programs could change, but the dedication to healing ourselves and healing the earth, the dedication to being of service to life, was the thread that went through all the programs. And so Kira Epstein actually, uh, uh, while she's been here as our communications manager, worked with us and we came up with a formulation of three areas of work, which we use now. Health and healing, education and the arts, and environment and justice. Um, and that is the kind of current version, and it may well change again, of something that kept changing names from healing ourselves and healing the earth, to a center for service and research in health and human ecology, to an environmental health center, and uh, then to a nonprofit active in health, environment, education, and justice, and now to uh, health and healing, education, the arts, environment, and justice. So the theme continues, the language changes as the culture changes and as our work changes, uh, but the themes continue. So that's a kind of a, uh, kind of a, little piece that I wanted to throw in there. So when I was at Commonweal, my brother Steve Lerner was running the Commonweal Research Institute, and he started publishing uh, a uh, magazine uh, called Common Knowledge, and I started writing for it. So my first paper for it followed up on Tomorrow's Children, and it was called the Biosocial Decline Hypothesis. And the biosocial decline hypothesis built on Hans Selye's work and basically said, look, this total environmental stress load is causing degeneration, physiological degeneration in many forms in human beings. And that was true. 
But then I thought, wait a minute. It's not completely true because there are ways in which the stress in the environment is getting greater, but there are also ways in which we're being nourished in better ways. So there are many, many ways in which human beings and certainly pockets of human beings in different parts of the world, you know, you just look around. We're, we have access in California to incredible organic foods. You know, many of us are not horrifically stressed as the huge refugee communities around the world are stressed or starving people in Africa or whatever else. But the, but the point is that it's not just stress is increasing, nurturance is diminishing, therefore there's an increase in degenerative conditions. Biopsychosocial transformation means that the biological, psychological, and social vectors impacting human and other species health is transforming. And therefore, in some respects, we're more stressed. In other respects, we may be more nourished. And so it's not as simple as just talking about biosocial decline. So the biosocial decline uh, hypothesis was the first uh, of these uh, formulations. The second, as I said, was called biopsychosocial transformation, which was also published in Common Knowledge. And the third, uh, and this I can date from... Um, the beginning of the Jennifer Altman Foundation, which was the left to us by um, one of the alumni of the Cancer Help Program. The third was an essay that was widely distributed um, called The Age of Extinctions in the Emerging Environmental Health Movement, which is the precursor of the essay in Sun Magazine, in um, Yes Magazine that I read to you from. You're listening to a New School at Commonweal Conversation with Michael Lerner. So, I want to go back now <clears throat> to the drivers of extinction. I'm sorry this is complicated, but what can I say? So, the original list uh, drew on E.O. Wilson. Climate change, ozone depletion, toxic chemicals, habitat destruction, and invasive species. E.O. Wilson, the great naturalist, wrote a beautiful essay. I mean, he wrote a bunch of books on this, but he wrote an essay called Is Mankind Suicidal? And in that essay, he said that we might have been better off if the dominant species that had evolved had turned out to be some form of a giant ant because ants are much more collaborative than human beings are in all. So after that, I found the E.O. Wilson essay, uh, The Future Does Not Need Us, which I mentioned in Wired magazine. And that added to E.O. Wilson's list, uh, uh, Bill Joy, uh, who was the chief scientist at Sun Microsystems, wrote this brilliant essay. He said we were moving from an age of weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, biochemical, and uh, the like, to an age of technologies of mass destruction, biotechnology, nanotechnology, and robotics. And the thing about these technologies of, of mass destruction is, number one, they all have the capacity to multiply out of control once they're let loose. Number two, while the weapons of mass destruction, like nuclear bombs, require a huge industrial base, the technologies of mass destruction can be cooked up in a garage laboratory on a very, very small 
based. And so um, uh, his essay, The Future Does Not Need Us, suggested that with these emerging technologies of mass destruction, uh, we just have no idea what's going to happen to the human species. So um, there was an, in this period of time, there was an, uh, um, we had at the beginning of the Earth Summit, in Rio de Janeiro in the lead up to the Earth Summit. We did a whole series. We had a group called the Commonwealth Sustainable Futures Group. And we invited a guy named Jim McNeil, who had been the executive secretary of the Brundtland Commission, which created the term sustainable development. And he had worked with uh, Rene DuBose, the great scientists and others uh, 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 on this commission. And they created the idea of sustainable development. And the thesis of the Brundtland Commission was that the only way that humanity was going to survive in any decent shape was if there was a grand bargain between the developed North and the undeveloped, less developed South, in which the North provided the South with the resources and the technologies to skip the industrialization process that the North had gone through and... Uh, and to go directly to a, essentially a post-carbon way of developing. And so the Earth Summit, what year was the Earth Summit, Charles? Do you remember? 91. What? 91. 91. So uh, the Earth Summit in 1991 was the effort to cement that grand bargain between the North and the South. And guess what? It failed. And not only did it fail, it failed miserably. Uh, I mean, there have been elements of it, but the North just never came up with the resources. And the South just said, hey, you guys aren't delivering. And so in the ongoing conversation about climate issues, we're living with that reality that the North never came up with the resources to enable the South to stop developing coal and you know other things um, in order to uh, make the transition in a sustainable way. In any case, Jim McNeil came to Commonwealth for a conference, and he said something over dinner that I never have forgotten, which is he said that heuristically he thought about four possible human futures. The first was business as usual, that basically the world would continue as it is. The second is that we would achieve sustainability. The third was that we would descend into chaos. And the fourth was that we would become artificial people on an artificial planet. Now, I've kept that heuristic, meaning it's useful for just teaching or thinking, uh, scenario in my mind ever since. And the real truth of the matter is, it isn't a choice among the four, it's combinations of the four. So to some extent, business as usual continues. To some extent, we are moving towards sustainability. To some extent, we are clearly descending into chaos. And to some extent, we are clearly becoming artificial people on an artificial planet. So if you just think of all the ways that many of us in this room have been technologically modified, right? You know, I had a heart attack. I've got stents in my heart. You know, uh, how many people have had knees replaced, hips replaced? People have hearts replaced. You know, we're beginning to be able to grow human organs in pigs and on mesh things and things like that. So we are becoming artificial people on an artificial planet. And so really, 
the conversation is not about which of these, it's about which combination of these can we achieve. You know, what is baked with a cake now and what, what can we do? So I finally, on this particular subject, want to mention that in addition to climate change, ozone depletion, toxic chemicals, habitat destruction, invasive species, you know, warfare things, well, nuclear, not just warfare, um, biotech, nanotech, robotics, we should add there are many other vectors of stress, electromagnetic fields. That doesn't get a lot of press, but we have enormously modified the electromagnetic environment in which we all live. We're all holding these cell phones up to our ears, and, you know, um, and we all have them all the time. And, you know, there are billions of cell phones around now. So these are generators. And we have in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which is our partnership of 5,000 partners around the world who uh, debate uh, environmental health science, and you can join free if you want. Uh, we have an EMF listserv that every single day, the most recent science on EMF comes across this listserv. And so there's simply no question that, uh, that these things that we all carry, right, and that we feel we're not only addicted to, but if we're separated from them, we develop acute anxiety, you know? <laughs> if we lose our cell phone or if we leave it at home, how far will you drive back to the house to get your cell phone if you've left it? I mean, it's, you know, it's like, it's a big deal. Anyway, it's incredibly useful to us. It's addictive. It also enslaves us in a certain way. And... It is a powerful EMF transmitter, which we're busy holding to our brain, putting in our bra, putting in our back pocket, or putting in our front pocket, you know, where it is, if we have it on, it is affecting us, you know? So synthetic chemistry is another driver, which is now a play toy. So the point is, all of this is happening. And it's happening in ever more acute ways. And even in these idyllic coastal communities like Bolinas, you can feel it happening. If I've lived here for over 40 years now. And there are all these drivers of change that are emerging right here in Bolinas to say nothing of anywhere else you can live. So what I want to come back to now is the question of um, how we live through this what we can do for ourselves and families and what we can do to tilt the balance toward a more livable future. And I think one of the most acute ways of framing the question is what do we tell our children? What do we tell young people? Uh, we have an amazing friend up on Whidbey Island named Peggy Taylor who with Charlie Murphy and my colleague Oren Slosberg, who's our chief strategies officer here at Commonweal, um, brought uh, an amazing new Commonwealth program called the Power of Hope Summer Camps here. And uh, so uh, Oren and uh, Amber Fowler um, uh, co-produced these uh, camps in the summer now. And they are as powerful as the Cancer Help Program in terms of transformation of the young people who come. And what Peggy said, and I remember it very acutely, is how do we protect young people from adult cynicism and despair, all right? 
So this is a very acute way of, of posing the question. For ourselves as individuals, for children, for teenagers, for young people, what's the deal? What are we supposed to say? And I don't know the answer to this. I don't know it. I don't think any of you know it. But we face it every day, which is, how do each of you as an individual hold this reality? Are you not aware of it? Are you aware of it but deny it? Do you kind of push it off to the side? Do you live with it as a constant presence and are you depressed by it? Do you live with it as a constant presence but have you found a way of being in relationship to it that is not depression? How do you do it? And then if, if you are asked by uh, a younger child, let's say an eight-year-old child or Mommy, I've heard about climate change. What's climate change? You know? I mean, I know a friend of mine uh, has um, a child in school, and they had um, a, I think she's about 12, they had a, um, a workshop at the school on climate change. And she came home, and her mom said to her, so how was the workshop on climate change? And the 12-year-old looked at her and said, thanks a lot, Mom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Meaning, thanks for leaving me this, you know? Thanks a lot, Mom, right? So how's a 12-year-old supposed to deal with this? You know, how's an 8-year-old supposed to deal with this? How's a teenager supposed to deal with this? How are the kids coming to the Power of Hope summer camps supposed to deal with this? So let's really think about this. And for ourselves. I mean, part of the blessing and curse of working at Commonweal is that if you're paying attention, you know that this is going on because this is what we do. The collaborative unhealthy environment, Cheryl, my wife Cheryl Patton and I, we're in the middle of this all the time. Every single day we're in the middle of us, you know? Every single day we're in the middle of this. So how, if, if you're immersed in it, how do you live with it? If you're not immersed in it, as most people are not immersed in it, most people have greater immediate problems. And you know what? It isn't helpful to them to think about this. After my heart attack, uh, you know, 13, 14 years ago, I couldn't watch the news. You know, I couldn't think about this stuff. But the present was incredibly real and precious to me. But I couldn't think about this stuff. I didn't have the psychic bandwidth to hold it. Most people don't have the psychic bandwidth to hold it. So people say it's a bad thing to be in denial. You know, actually, my colleague Rachel Naomi Remen says that denial gets a lot of bad press, but actually it's a pretty decent, you know, defense mechanism, you know, or other ways of dealing with it. So I'm not going to answer this question, but to me... Uh, it's a huge question, and I'm going to offer you some analogies. Um, so one analogy, I've been co-leading the Commonwealth Cancer Health Program for 31 years, and we've done 192 week-long retreats for cancer patients. And uh, so I've been in almost every one of those except for two when I had a heart attack. Um, and... Um, so these people uh, who come on the cancer health program, 
most of them have metastatic cancer, which means that it can't be cured. You may be able to help with it, but it can't be cured. So they're living with a life-threatening illness. Um, and then we have um, these uh, uh, briefer programs that we're doing with young breast cancer survivors from the Bay Area, which are three-day programs. And these are young women in their 20s, 30s, and early 40s who are typically mothers, right? Or often mothers, not typically mothers. So they face the question, what to say to their children about the fact that they're living with metastatic breast cancer, right? And when they come on the cancer help program or on these briefer programs, uh, it's one of the central questions. Uh, it, typically, it's the thing that causes them the most agony. It's not that they have breast cancer, it's that they might leave their children without a mother, right? And so the question of how to live with that, I would suggest to you, is not a distant analogy from being alive to the question of what we're facing now. So the analogy to living with a life-threatening illness has been with me ever since I wrote The Age of Extinctions in the Emerging Environmental Health Movement and started doing the cancer work. Um, because one of the realities is that many of these women are not depressed. They have found in this diagnosis a rebirth of consciousness to a place within themselves that the infinite preciousness of life and is actually profoundly, even transformatively, reinforced by the fact that they're living with a life-threatening illness. All right? So, is it possible that the age of extinctions, the sixth spasm of extinctions, will awaken a consciousness in a sufficient part of humanity, and many people says it just has to be 10% to reach a tipping point, where that shift in consciousness would actually drive a transformative relationship with technology? It's a nice idea. I don't know if it's actually going to happen. I think the problem is that when you get a diagnosis of cancer, it's, you get the diagnosis, bam, and then you go into treatment. But this is a little more like the analogy of the frog or whatever put in a pan of water and you gradually turn up the heat, right? And theoretically, I don't know if it's true, the frog cooks because, you know, it's so gradual. Well, on the one hand, this is gradual, but on the other hand, you can reach tipping points where it's not gradual at all. Or you can reach tipping points where it may have been gradual, but it becomes unlivable. So, for example, there's, an, there's a book out called Failing States, um, which my colleague Pete Myers turned me on to, which is about the geophysical forces that are creating failing states in Africa and around the world. And basically, when you look at the refugee flows into uh, uh, Europe, and, uh, and especially into Europe, What's happening? People are being driven by war and by climate change and by failed states. And these places have become unlivable, you know? The Latino immigration into the United States, which has slowed way down now, um, but the people coming in numbers are not 
uh, the Mexicans, there are uh, Guatemalans and others coming from states where the um, criminal gangs and so forth are so severe they just can't live there anymore. So, so the reality is that an increasingly large portion of people on earth are already experiencing acutely this future that for us in Bolinas is still largely hypothetical. But it ain't hypothetical, as we all know, for these refugee populations and all the places where people are starving to death. So we relate to it mostly via television or however we get our news. So that creates a strange double consciousness where on the one hand, we're reasonably comfortable, and on the other hand, we're living with this stuff as a, you know. So how do we do that? One thing we know from the analogy of living with a life-threatening illness is that there are civilizational analogies. So after large wars or other catastrophes, uh, civilizational consciousness changes. So World War I totally changed civilizational consciousness in Europe. World War II changed consciousness in Europe and the United States. Um, uh, the Vietnam War, at a certain level, changed consciousness. The Civil War certainly changed consciousness. Rebecca Solnit wrote a really nice book about, um, I don't remember the title, but it was about after uh, the Katrina uh, uh, hurricane, the instant communities that grew up in these uh, communities that were affected. In other words, in a specific community, you can imagine that if there was an earthquake in Bolinas or some other crisis in Bolinas, there'd be an amazing coming together. There's a kind of instant community responses. Um, Paradise built in hell. Excuse me. Paradise built in hell. Paradise built in hell. Thank you so much, Tina, by Rebecca Solnit. Paradise built in hell. So, uh, and, and she covers, is it several different, what are the ones she covers? 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Uh, okay, thank you. Uh, so, so this can happen, but what are the limits of paradises built in hell? In other words, if that goes on in a chronic state over time, do those communities survive or is that a mobilization that takes place in a temporary catastrophe? But the, the civilizational analogy is that civilizations do shift consciousness after crises, but the question of whether um, that change is positive or negative, or in what ways it's positive or negative, is very different. I mean, some, like Germany, moved toward fascism ultimately. Um, uh, after World War I, uh, the idealism, uh, European idealism, disappeared. After World War II, um, there was a tremendous movement because fascism was built on romantic memes. Um, there was a tremendous movement toward existentialism and pragmatism, which dropped spirituality and idealism. Um, and then we've tried ever since World War II, for the most part, to live in a world in which, as Nietzsche said, God is dead. And um, now many of the people in this room, and there's a, a continuing romantic movement, which, um, you know, spiritual but not religious, which brings spirituality back in, even if it doesn't bring religion back in. Um, 
and that's a good thing. But spirituality is a more vulnerable building block uh, for a uh, real way of surviving hard times than religion is. In other words, when you have a religious population um, that deeply, deeply believe in God, um, they can survive amazing things. You know, Nietzsche once said, those with a why to live can survive most anyhow. Um, and, um, but a spiritual orientation, you know, you meditate, you try to shift consciousness. It's not as strong a foundation as a belief in God, as a structure. And living without a belief in God, the, the humanist, sometimes existentialist version, is pretty tough as a, a way of doing it. So how do we live? The Hindus had an interesting approach. You know, they believe in four yugas, four great ages, and that we're living in the Kali Yuga, which is the one where humans are furthest from God. And actually, some of their calculations, I was looking it up on the internet, uh, think the Kali Yuga is going to end in the fairly near future, even though it's been going on for a long time. If you look back in Jewish history, the time of Maimonides, um, the great uh, Jewish physician, uh, the Jews are living in desperate circumstances. They truly believed the Messiah was coming. I mean, this was an act, and Maimonides said, you're not allowed to count the number of days until the Messiah comes, you know? So, I mean, it's that kind of thing. The Messiah is coming, but you're not allowed to count the number of days or number of years. Um, Christians obviously believed, and many continue to believe, that Christ came and Christ will return, you know? Um, I was listening to NPR last night driving home, and it was, you know, we rightly hear a lot about Black Lives Matter, and NPR uh, did a thing, uh, an interview with a uh, highway patrolman whose son, who was also a policeman, was shot and killed uh, by a white kid. Everybody in this story is white. The, the highway patrolman was white. The, his son, the policeman, just on the job, seven months, was white. The kid who uh, killed him and then killed himself was white. And the interviewer said to him, you know, she was trying to get him to say something emotional. And she said um, something like, how do you feel about your son's death? And this was a Southern guy. He said, well, I have a really deep faith in God. And he said, uh, it was his time. And, uh, you know, my experience of God enables me to uh, live with that. Um, how many of us could say that? Not a lot of people in this room, you know. Um, and um, Parker Palmer, the great Quaker uh, thinker, has a beautiful line in which he says that for people like us, that we need to live in the tragic gap between how things are and how they should be. And this question of how to live, I mean, one way to do it is, as E.O. Wilson said, is mankind suicidal? Arthur Kessler also wrote a beautiful book called The Ghost in the Machine, which was about the same thesis that maybe we're a suicidal species. Um, um, 
But which is a deeper way to live? Uh, to live in denial or to live in conscious awareness that life is tragic? And that goes back to the Greeks and the whole development of tragedy with the Greeks and these tragic choruses, which were basically saying, you know, at some level, this is our, you know, this just happens. We don't have any choice. Uh, this is the tragic condition. So, but if you watch a tragedy as opposed to denial, right? You watch a tragedy. Why do we watch tragedies? Because it deepens us, right? We come into deeper relationship with ourselves when we live in awareness of tragedy. And this is the whole point about darkness and people who live with an acute sense of darkness. So I said I was thinking of giving you a talk on Enneagram, and there are you know, Enneagrams in archetypal psychology with nine different points around the Enneagram and three subtypes of each point and so on. But one of those uh, points, the Enneagram 4, um, uh, lives with a lot of darkness. But the point about the Enneagram 4 is that they are the, quote, tragic romantics. They are the writers and the artists, and they see the light within the darkness. They see the light within the darkness. So there is that ability of some people that comes to them naturally, and others have to reflect to come to it, which is to ask, um, which is really better? Is it the hope that by creating some, quote, new story, we're going to turn all this around, we're all going to become spiritual, and we're going to change everything, and we're going to, you know, live in a sustainable world and peace and justice, right? Um, that's a beautiful idea, and a lot of current thinking is based on that in, in the progressive community. You know, Martin Luther King, the arc of history is long, in it, but it bends toward justice. Well, I love to believe that. But then I look at these drivers of extinction and, and the arc of history of it bends toward justice, which I deeply love to believe, is going to be longer than I wish it was. It's going to be a really long thing. So how do we live? How do each of us live? And how do we live in our communities? There's a beautiful quote from Sri Aurobindo, which is so powerful to me. If there is a future, it will wear a crown of feminine design. If there is a future, it will wear a crown of feminine design. You're listening to A New School at Commonweal Conversation with Michael Lerner. Now, I actually believe that to be true because biologically, psychologically, because women bear children and they need to care for those children. Uh, women have actually been, I believe, the most powerful moving force in most progressive, I don't even want to use the word progressive, in most movements for human dignity and um, for making a better world. They have often not been recognized um, but in leadership, they are increasingly 
coming uh, to the fore. Um, when I talk about the different movements, in other words, if we look at the last 500 years, in the hopeful sense, we've moved from despotism to democracy. We've moved from slavery uh, to um, uh, relative freedom. Uh, we've moved from workers as serfs to trade unions. Uh, we've had um, the uh, women's movement, the gay rights movement, the civil rights movement, the human rights movement, the animal rights movement, um, all of these movements that have expanded the range of those for whom dignity should be given. And in those movements, women have been an incredibly powerful force. And so I'm inclined to believe that if there is a future, it will wear a crown of feminine design. There will be a future. I think it's unlikely that humanity will disappear completely. It's what kind of future and what kind of humanity. There's a new book out that I just got up at Point Reyes Books, and I encourage you all to buy your books up there if you're in West Marin, uh, by Yuval Noah Harari, called Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. And uh, this guy has a PhD from Oxford, lectures at the U Department of History at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. His first book, Sapiens, was translated into 40 languages. And this is about the future, and, um, and basically he suggests that um, that the, the humanist revolution, which we're still in, which defeated communism and fascism, and nothing else has, has overtaken it yet. Uh, in the early 21st century, the train of progress is again pulling out of the station. This will probably be the last train ever to leave the station called Homo sapiens. Those who miss this train will never get a second chance. In order to get a seat on it, you have to understand 21st technology, and in particular, the power of biotechnology and computer algorithms. These powers are far more potent than steam and the telegraph, and they will not be used merely for the production of food, textiles, vehicles, and weapons. The main products of the 21st century will be the bodies, brains, and minds, and the gap between those who know how to engineer bodies and brains and those who do not will be far bigger than the gap between Dickens, Britain, and Mahdi's Sudan. In fact, it will be bigger than the gap between sapiens and Neanderthals. In the 21st century, those who ride the train of progress will acquire divine abilities of creation and destruction, while those left behind will face extinction. And so part three of this is called Homo sapiens lose control. 
Can humans go on running the world and giving it meaning? How do biotechnology and artificial intelligence threaten humanism? Who might inherit humankind? And what new religion might replace humanism? And so um, the most important question in the 21st century economics may well be what to do with all the superfluous people. What will conscious humans do once we have highly intelligent, non-conscious algorithms that can do everything better? And so he describes how algorithms are algorithms. Every animal, including Homo sapiens, is an assemblage of organic algorithms. Uh, and algorithm calculations are not affected by the materials from which the calculator is built. And there's no reason to believe that organic algorithms can do things that non-organic algorithms will never be able to do. Um, and so he talks about how Google, Facebook, and other algorithms become all-knowing oracles. They may well evolve into agents and ultimately into sovereigns. Consider the case of Waze, a GPS navigational application that many drivers now use. Waze isn't just a map. It's millions of users constantly updated about traffic jams, car accidents, and police cars. Hence, Waze knows how to divert you from heavy traffic and bring you to your destination through the quickest possible route. When you reach a junction, your gut instinct tells you to turn right, but Waze instructs you to turn left. Users sooner or later learn that they had better listen to Waze rather than their feelings. And um, so um, uh, he, he talks about how uh, IBM and you know all these other uh, entities, Google and so on, are, are building ever more intelligent uh, algorithms like Waze. And um, there's one called Cortanas. Uh, as, uh, as Cortanas gains authority, they may begin manipulating each other to further the interests of their masters so that success in the job market or the marriage market may increasingly depend on the quality of your Cortana. Rich people owning the most up-to-date Cortana will have a decisive advantage over four people with older versions. Um, so he talks about this as the great uncoupling between consciousness and intelligence. And uh, he also talks about upgrading inequality. We've looked at two of the three practical threats to liberalism. First, that humans will lose their value completely. Second, that humans will still be valuable collectively, but will lose their individual authority and instead be managed by external algorithms. And the third is that some people will remain both indispensable and undecipherable, but they will constitute a small privileged elite of upgraded human beings. These superhumans will enjoy unheard of abilities and unprecedented creativity, which will allow them to go on making many of the most important decisions in the world. They will perform crucial services for the system, while the system could neither, could neither understand nor manage them. However, most humans will not be upgraded and will, con will consequently become an inferior caste dominated by both computer algorithms and the new superhumans. So, and then he talks about what the new religions will be. And um, he said, despite all the talk about radical Islam and Christian fundamentalism, the most interesting place in the world from a religious perspective is not the Islamic State or the Bible Belt, but Silicon Valley. 
That's where high-tech gurus are brewing for us brave new religions that have little to do with God and everything to do with technology. These new techno-religions can be divided into two main types, techno-humanism and data religion. And so, uh, techno... Um, so, he says, 70,000 years ago, the cognitive revolution transformed the sapien's mind from an insignificant ape to the ruler of the world. The improved sapien's minds suddenly had access to this, all this stuff. Uh, and so the data religion, just to um, cut to the end of this, is um, a religion that basically says that consciousness doesn't matter, that it's all data. And from a dataist religious perspective, uh, the way you improve the efficiency of the system is four basic methods. You increase the number of processors. A city of 100,000 has more computing power than a village of 1,000. You increase the variety of the processors. Use different, diverse ways to calculate and analyze data. You increase the number of connections between processors and increase the freedom of movement along existing connections. And so uh, his very last line... Um, if we think in terms of months, we probably focus on immediate problems such as the turmoil in the Middle East, the refugee crisis in Europe, and the slowing of the Chinese economy. If we think in terms of decades, then global warming, growing inequality, and the disruption of the job market loom large. Yet if we take the really grand view of life, all other problems and developments are overshadowed by these three interlinked processes. One, science is converging on an all-encompassing dogma which says that organisms are algorithms and life is data processing. Two, intelligence is decoupling from consciousness. And three, non-conscious but highly intelligent algorithms may soon know us better than we know ourselves. These three processes raise three key questions, which I hope you will stick in your mind. One, are organisms really just algorithms and is life really just data processing? Two, what is more valuable, intelligence or consciousness? And three, what will happen to society, politics, and daily life when non-conscious but highly intelligent algorithms know us better than we know ourselves? So... I know I've given you a lot here, and what I, this experiment that I've started doing, I'll probably do some more, is to enable me to hear myself think. And um, so let's just come back to the how we should live. Um, Kurt Vonnegut has a great book called God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, which some in philanthropy call the urtext of philanthropy, meaning that, you know, Rosewater is this wealthy guy who just starts giving money away to people. And somewhere in that book, I believe it's in that book, it's somewhere in Vonnegut, Rosewater says that the, the real people who are writing the future are the science fiction writer. Uh, and... Um, from what I've outlined to you, I think that's probably true. The great science fiction writers are writing extraordinary things. And if you, on the one hand, you kind of take the, the liberal progressive narrative, it 
hasn't changed all that much. Somehow we're going to make it through all this stuff and we're going to have this better world. But if you watch what's going on in the public consciousness, if you watch television series like The Game of Thrones, right? Um, for those of you who don't know it, it's an incredible series of a, a time in which um, there's a kind of a feudal competition between these warring states, you know? And it's magical, um, but it attracts a huge readership, uh, watchership. Um, there's another show um, that Ken Adams reminded me of the name of called The Leftovers. I don't know if any of you have seen The Leftovers. The Leftovers is about a future where people keep actually disappearing in what the Christians call the rapture. They just, you see their clothes, but they're gone. But Charlotte and I have watched a number of episodes of it. But it's a, it's a dystopian future in which most of the world is very chaotic and disorganized. And then there are these little uh, communities where life in some decent way continues. Um, the video games, you know, all the dystopian films that come out, the human consciousness is preparing for a sci-fi dystopian future. Human consciousness is doing that. And um, the video games are an incredible example of that. So, not only what should we tell our children, but how do we prepare them to live? How do we prepare ourselves to live? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, who's going to survive in this future? Who will thrive? What ideas will guide us? Um, is it really better to live with a tragic sense of the world that deepens consciousness than to live in denial, which is easier? Or to live with a sense of hope uh, that is really ungrounded and... Um, or I'd say optimism, that's really ungrounded in what's actually going on. Um, you know, we think about the future of Commonweal just as a community. Um, we've been here 40 years, but when we started Commonweal, you know, just bear in mind, IBM Selectric typewriters were new. There were no computers, there were no Xerox machines, there were no fax machines, you know, none of that stuff. And, and uh, some of us have been there since 40 years. I mean... This place, you know, 40 years. So what's the next 40 years going to be like? Well, all of these trends are accelerated. So, you know, will Commonwealth be on this site? I don't know. Will it exist at all? I don't know. But I like to think that it may exist because I believe that Commonwealth, the analogy for me is that Commonwealth is served by a nonprofit structure, but it's really a community of people. And so I've been really working with this. Um, it's an imperfect analogy, but I really like, as a, as a hope, the idea that Commonweal could in some modest way um, build on what the Quakers did. The Quakers are a very interesting community of people because I'm not saying they're perfect and they have all their own internecine struggles, but 
they believe that every human being has what they call that of God within them. Uh, we don't have to use the word God, but that of whatever you consider ultimate human dignity, I would say. They also believe that um, the way to be together, to bring out that of the highest within us, is to sit in a circle in silence and let each person speak his or her truth. That's what we do a lot at Commonweal. They also have been in the forefront of every movement for human dignity from slavery onward, uh, from the anti-slavery movement to the peace movement to the civil rights movement, the human rights movement. Um, they've had this incredible impact, and guess what? There are only 350,000 Quakers in the world, 200,000 of whom are in Africa, which is amazing. So therefore, 150,000 Quakers around the world have had this seeding impact on human consciousness. So I believe that the most interesting way to live is not with a sense of optimism, and this is something I've drawn on for a long time. Václav Havel, the great Czech playwright and statesman, um, has a beautiful distinction between optimism and hope. And he says, optimism is the belief that everything is going to go right. He says, hope, by contrast, is a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times. Now, if you're a young woman with metastatic breast cancer, it's hard to be optimistic, but you can be hopeful. And that sense of hope is very distinct from optimism. It is a deep orientation of the human soul. And that word soul is important because soul, as Carl Jung so clearly understood, grows at the expense of the ego. That is to say that our egoic consciousness, how we succeed, how we want to thrive, all the things we want, all our desires, the kind of imperial ego, when it is defeated by life or wounded by life, that's when soul grows and emerges. So that antithetical relationship between ego and soul is a profoundly important one. So when Václav Havel says that hope is different from optimism, that it's a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times, that is that Enneagram 4 capacity to see the light within the darkness. And I think that for me, and I'm not saying for you, that that ability to live with full awareness of the human and global tragedy that we are enacting, and at the same time to live in hope and joy and peace, and always to do what we can to build our arcs wherever we find ourselves planted, to save what we can save. Another analogy might be that if the world at this point is just a battlefield, 
that maybe we're the pacifist ambulance drivers that just go around picking up whoever we can manage to save. And for me, that willingness to say, you know, I don't want to live in denial. I want to acknowledge and experience the totality of the tragedy in which we're living. But I don't want to live in cynicism and despair. I want to live in hope. And, um, and I want, you know, Rilke, this great line from Rilke about, in his letters to a young poet, he said, you know, live with these um, unanswered questions of the quote as though, um, you know, you couldn't, you, couldn't answer, you couldn't get it now, but you can live your way into the answers. You can live your way into the answers. So if we hold the question of how to live in this period of time, then perhaps we can live our way into the answer. And I think that living our way into the answers is not best done in isolation. It's best done in community. And I believe that it's done not just as an intellectual process, but as a whole body process of body, you know, a soul, mind, spirit. Um, and I believe that um, the beauty of a community like Commonweal, many other millions of similar things around the world, is that we do this learning not by thinking about things, but by being in the battlefield and enacting the best that we can do at any given time. And it is that learned experience of what we actually do as a community with ourselves in relationship with each other, with core values that go back to the beginning of time, the kindness of the heart, the wisdom of the mind, and the service of the body, the three great yogas of the Bhagavad Gita, that we be kind to each other, that we be as wise and skillful as we're able to be in our imperfect way, and that we dedicate ourselves to a life of service. And those three values are very, very ancient. And they were held by people who lived in incredibly difficult periods of time themselves, far more difficult than the ones that we're living in right now at the individual human level. So I believe that these ancient traditions are the best guide for me for how to live. Let's just take a moment of silence and then I'd love to hear from you. So I welcome thoughts and reflections. If you'd say your name and keep your thought relatively brief so we can hear from people, it'd be great. Yes, Ian. Hi, my name is Ian Plant, and um, yeah, you took me through a journey, Michael. That was a lot to think about. Uh, when I think about the Quakers, the big thing for me that I've always remembered is that they say you can pray, but then you need to get up and move your feet. Mm -hmm. And I love that interaction. That's for me. Say it again. You can pray, but then you... You pray, and then you get up and move your feet. Yeah, the Quakers saying you pray, and then you get up and move your feet. That's beautiful. You Thank get you. get up and move your feet, and so it's interaction. Yeah, I mean, right. It's being of service and interaction, and 
you know, with the, the march in D.C., the Women's March in D.C., and talking in group and thinking about, uh, you know, what can I do? I, I come to what Gandhi said, which is be the change you want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. I know I can do that. Yes. I can do that. And yeah. so that's where I start, and then whatever else happens can happen, but that that's where, where I start. That's at. beautiful, Ian. Thank you very much. That you, you, you can be the change that you want to see in the world from Gandhi. That's beautiful. Thank you. Others? Yeah. Uh, my name is Charles Weissmiller, and I'm thinking about, you know, life has developed on Earth ever since the beginning. Mm -hmm. And somehow, something occurred with these organisms that became the immune system. Mm -hmm. And the immune system was the only thing that could allow things to, you know, it was a, it was a backup. Mm -hmm. It was something that would, mm -hmm. could heal us. When things went wrong, it would heal us. And I feel like that there's, that that concept of the immune system is at work now, even in what you're saying, mm -hmm. and on the planet, even if we don't know it exactly, that there is healing that's occurring of, it, of its own. It's an entity. <coughs> and it makes me think of also uh, the Native Americans mm -hmm. in their use of humor, mm -hmm. and maybe all of us in our use of humor, mm -hmm. that somehow you can make a joke and lift the spirit, and it's buoyant, and it's more able to cope in dark times. No, that's beautiful. Thank you, Charles. And of course, um, Paul Hawken used the analogy of the immune system in one of his best books, from my point of view, um, I'm trying to remember the name, but it, it was about the movement that has no name. It was about, does anybody remember Blessed, the name? Blessed Unrest. Blessed Unrest, thank you, yeah. It's really a beautiful book. It's, and what Paul Hawk and Charles, to your point, he, he uses the, he says, you know, if you look at the problems, it seems, it seems hopeless. He said, but if you look at the community groups all over the world that are responding to the problems, he said they're local. He said they're non-ideological because they have to bring people together to solve the problems. And they're functioning like a global immune system. And so that is a source of great hope. I also have many friends, I should say, who... Um, uh, 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 who um, really believe, and I would like to believe, sometimes, I, I certainly think it's possible, that, um, that humanity really is evolving toward a, a different spiritual level at which, um, at which we will live in a completely different way, right? And that belief gives people great comfort, and it's a beautiful belief. And um, so I don't knock it at all. I mean, it's hard to figure out. And I think each of us gets our own version of this. Um, this goes back to Enneagram for a moment, just because if you look at Enneagram as nine different archetypal types of consciousness, um, you know, the Enneagram one, um, whose commitment is to the truth and... Um, 
as Ayan said, to, to be the change that I want to see in the world. Gandhi was an Enneagram one. Um, so was Ralph Nader, you know. Those are Enneagram. The Enneagram twos um, want to help the process. Enneagram threes, the achievers, want to achieve something big in this. Enneagram fours um, have, are they're very different types of subsites of different uh, Enneagram fours. But um, they have an enormous power to live in the tragic reality and to empathize with the tragic and others. They are able to see the suffering of others and from their own experience of suffering to deeply connect. It's a deeply healing capacity to connect, both with the earth and with people. I'm an Enneagram 5, the observer, right? So uh, I come from a very mental place, and um, my tendency is to look at the whole fabric of the complexity of everything and observe it, witness it, you know? Uh, Enneagram 6 is the loyalist, so people who are looking for uh, the way to come together in service to life. Enneagram 7 is the, um, the optimist, you know, seeing this in a helpful way. Enneagram 8 is the iconoclast. Um, it's a, a leader role um, uh, dedicated to a great truth. And Enneagram 9 is the peacemaker, you know. So the only reason I run through this, quite aside from how totally fascinated I am by it, and it's, it's power to help me understand myself and other people, is that, and, and by the way, we all have all points in the Enneagram within us, but we have a natal place. But as we go on, we, we include more and more others. Um, it emphasizes that we can't possibly all do this the same way. That, that each of us has our own different place from which we see this. Whether you use Enneagram or Myers-Briggs, the Jungian system or something else, the point is the enormous variety of different um, cognitive spiritual sets and then layer on top of that all the different cultural and political and economic. And so we each have such a different story going on in our minds. And we can't impose any one of these stories on anyone. So all we can do is speak for ourselves, as I did, and said, the way I do this is Gandhi's way to try to be the change I want to see. You're listening to a New School at Commonweal conversation with Michael Lerner. Other thoughts? Yeah. I'm Chloe Martin, and I just want to thank you, Michael, for sharing all that um, reflection. Um, I wanted to respond to a, a couple of things, and, and one is that um, I think there's the way I make sense of all this is there are two sides to everything. Mm-hmm. So um, on one side, we're seeing a lot of degradation and there's a lot to be um, fearful and worried about with what we see in the world but we're also we've also seen progress and changes and you know technology that's helped Mm -hmm. create remarkable Mm -hmm. um, changes in terms of 
health and medicine and survival and mm -hmm. systems that allow better quality of life mm -hmm. um, in so many ways. So um, I feel like everything that is progress also has a cost. Mm -hmm. And so that's just part of the complexity of life. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we can only see a part of however we understand it, we're only mm -hmm. seeing a part. So you've just given us a a certain vision, um, but yeah, it's just a part. Yeah, it's and just it's one just the one that I happen to live with. Right. You know. <laughs> but what's right and um, you know, you've obviously dedicated a great part of your life to to thinking about this, and um, but I think each of us can see it in our own different way. Absolutely. I also think oh, go ahead. Um, uh, I appreciate what you had to say about um, religion because I actually do come from a religious tradition as a, as a Christian and what I find um, helpful about that is it gives us this greater narrative mm -hmm. to help make sense of what Absolutely. we're seeing so God created everything mm -hmm. so we can trust that it's created by God and that God made it out of love mm -hmm. Um God gave us each a call mm -hmm. to work in this world in mm -hmm. a certain way and that we're called to community to be working mm -hmm. toward creating God's kingdom, making mm -hmm. things better. Mm -hmm. I actually see that that's what I do in my life. That's what I'm trying to do. That helps to focus me. Um, but ultimately, it's not in our hands. Mm -hmm. um, so that gives me comfort that I can only do as much as I can do. And that God's promise is that God will will return and make the, heal this broken world, and that's a mystery. I can't explain that to you, mm -hmm. but having that narrative helps me in times of feeling completely overwhelmed and thinking, "Oh man, I got to read that book because that nanotechnology—I have no idea what you're talking about." <laughs> but uh, but ultimately, that's that's what I have to keep my hope on. Well, Chloe, thank you for that, and thank you especially for representing here um, one of the most beautiful ways to live in the world is to have that faith in God and to, I mean, what you just described is uh, how so many people in different religions manage to survive. And, um, and the... Uh, acidity of modernity that has eroded so many of those faith traditions. Um, you know, so many humanist, post-humanist thinkers, you know, regard religion as an illusion. You know, Marx's opiate of the proletariat, uh, opiate of the proletariat, and uh, uh, and I just think that's wrong. It's one of the great ways to be. It's Historically, it's one of the ways that has worked for the vast majority of human beings for the longest period of time. And so somehow we're structured for religious belief. And, um, um, and the movement toward modern spiritualities, which are an effort to integrate that impulse within us with um, a new narrative of some kind are still very vulnerable. They're still not as strong in general 
uh, as, as ways of giving you what you described. So deep thanks for offering that. Orin, you had a point. Actually, in some ways, I kind of yearn for that religious mm -hmm. belief. You know, I wish that I could actually mm -hmm. have that so that you can have the why that lets you live through the how. Right. And, and I don't have it in that mm -hmm. way. And this came to be when, after our Power Hope dinner last week, um, I was driving with a 17-year-old in the car. And on his way back, he was expressing his despair. It's like, really, what's the point? And he goes through the list, right? The oceans are acidifying, the climate is, is getting worse, you know, Belize and Stinson are going to be underwater. He just goes down the whole list and, um, and is looking for something to hold on to. And I don't have the religious answer. That doesn't work. But I do have some kind of faith that comes from, you know, as an Enneagram, um, seven. Mm -hmm. I have that drive to try and find the light and try and find the something between optimism and hope. And I wanted to share it with this young man. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it wasn't accessible. And, you know, to give him the idea like, well, there's a community and you could be the, what do you call it? The, the EMT in the war field that's going on <laughs> saving souls. Um, that won't work for a 17 year old. That question of how to reframe this to the young people is a very challenging question. Absolutely. And it kind of resonates a little bit with what I remember during the 70s thinking about the, new, the threat of nuclear war. Mm -hmm. But this is more tangible. That was a, a hypothetical political situation. This mm -hmm. is a scientific fact that the world is progressing here. Mm -hmm. This is where religion doesn't play a role because it is moving in that direction, and I can't say, well, you know what, maybe there'll be an intervention, a divine intervention that will change science, because my brain doesn't allow me to think that way. And the young people that come together think that way even more extreme than I do. Their belief is in the God of science. There's a lot of young people, especially here in California, that believe that science has brought us here. Some of them believe that science will solve the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, the giant fans in the sky, they're going to mix up the ozone and, and mm -hmm. kind of repopulate the skies with the right kind of gases. Um, but it's not tangible. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that that same young man, his belief in the power of hope in the summer camp mm -hmm. was about the community. Mm -hmm. And he says that's what keeps him alive. Mm -hmm. And that is very strong in my mind, is that the idea of coming together and the mm -hmm. love that they were sharing among themselves while they cannot necessarily explain it in tangible faith or societal psychological terms, that was very real. Mm -hmm. And that was something that he felt that he could hold on to, mm -hmm. living through this. I mean, it's, it's exacerbated by teenage existential angst, mm -hmm. but it's a very real angst that the, the sense of community and belonging um, helps walk him through it. And in some ways, Commonweal is that for me. Mm -hmm is that having a community like this that can help and be of support, provide that kind of almost faith or the belief or the hope mm -hmm. is what kind of helps me live with this. Thank you, that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I had a few thoughts. Uh, Gary, Could you say your name? Gary Rosenblatt. Hey, Gary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, two things. I mean, first of all, just the way you're embodying the spirit of inquiry itself. I just want to acknowledge that. It's, it, it, as a value that I have been working with myself, but 
might call just the love of what is really true, mm -hmm. and 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 the, our capacity to to go deeper and deeper and ask these important questions. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of it opens us up and brings us to a to a place of share a, more of a sharing, a more of a sense of community when we're able to be open this way with this without judging, without shaming, but just mm. with, without feeling that there's something wrong, but we can, we can simply honor and, and particularly nowadays with all that's going on around the value of truth. Mm. Uh, the, the other points that, that kind of came out for me, and this actually came up with the conversation I had with Diana's husband years ago, in his evolution, and, and, and he said to me, kind of struck, because when we got together in the beginning, we always had questions about pessimism versus optimism. Mm -hmm. And at one point, Joel said to me, well, I've become a possibilist. Yeah. <laughs> That's what my father used to say. I'm neither an optimist nor a, a, a pessimist. I'm a possibilist. And that just hit me in the heart. When, and and I've, I've always... Uh, remember that comment and it's it's a, it's a very touching place and I, I would I would also say that just the the quality that we might call heart mm -hmm. uh, is another area what where we you know we live in this kind of uh, context that it is that does put us all in our heads mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of work yeah. that we can do and appreciate what you said about these the values of compassion, kindness, and, you know, as, as the, the basis mm -hmm. to begin to kind of regroup and come mm -hmm. together where we, we are sensing our, our natural sense of compassion community that we are. Thank you. That's beautiful. Sarah, I want to ask you, uh, as one of the younger people in the room, and a long-time resident of the Commonwealth Garden and somebody who's thinking about deep issues of the human psyche in very interesting ways. As you listen to this, what, how do you hold it? Um, I feel a little bit put on the spot. <laughs> you what? I feel a little bit put on the spot. Um, yeah, I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Surprise. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I uh, I feel really. I mean, first of all, I'm I'm sort of coming into listening to you with an appreciation of the very systemic way that you're holding all these issues mm -hmm. and putting them into conversation and looking into the past and looking into the future and mm -hmm. looking into art and looking into poet. You know, bringing forth poetry and because mm -hmm. um, I feel like I. Um, I feel like the way that I hold what's happening, I have to kind of invite in resources from all kinds of mm -hmm. places to help me mm -hmm. engage, whether that's community or whether that's Ursula Le Guin and science fiction, and, you know, all of these different pieces. So I'm appreciating that. And, um, and I think, like, I guess right now I, I, I'm thinking about, um, for some reason I'm, I'm thinking about... Uh, this um, therapeutic method that I study, and there's a, a principle that's one of the foundations for the method called organicity. Mm -hmm. It's essentially trust in like a 
a natural organism, an organism's natural unfolding towards towards mm -hmm. healing and, and resilience and, and self growth. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's a really like doing this work with individuals brings up this ongoing question for me. Oh, is this, you know, what does that actually mean about the world? Is that is that true? Is the universe self organizing? Do, do things naturally move towards healing even with all of the defense mechanisms and all of the, the clutter and you know, is, is there a kind of immune system that that has a, a force and, and how do I lean into that in a way, that idea in a way that might feel that might be hopeful, mm -hmm. um, but is not, you know, spiritually bypassing on the other hand. So how to hold those extremes and and I'm thinking also about within this particular method when like resistance shows up in a person instead of fighting that resistance or pushing back against it, we like need to support it mm -hmm. in a physical way. Mm -hmm. um, and often that's when like enough, that natural organicity and self-healing comes, comes forth. So I, I think about that principle mm -hmm. a lot on like cultural levels. Like, okay, they're, they're vast, you know, um, terrifying forces through us on, on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. And um, what are ways in which we can meet them? Mm -hmm. Ongoing. Big question, ongoing <laughs> piece of work. Thank you. Thanks for letting me push on this. That's just what's there right now. That's what I do. Yeah, I think I can talk now. Okay. Thank you, Gary. Actually, he brought up what I was one of the two things I wanted yes. to say. Is, um, Joe and I um, had a framework. <clears throat> have a framework called positivism and it's um, more aligned with hope mm -hmm. and the way we I'm going to just elaborate we see optimism and pessimism as opinions about how the future will be mm -hmm. and in order to support being an optimist or a pessimist mm -hmm. you have to keep developing reasons and mm -hmm. maybe polarizing with the other side mm -hmm. and it's, it's a narrative that's difficult because mm -hmm. um, but with passivism, you're in the now, mm -hmm. looking for possibility where mm -hmm. you find it and mm -hmm. doing what you can to support possibility. You don't have to have an opinion right. or make a case for optimism mm -hmm. and pessimism. So yeah. it's very aligned with hope. Mm -hmm. as, uh, so I wanted to offer that framework. Thank you. The other thing I wanted to say is um, that I feel not only what do we tell children, but what do they tell us? And what do we ask them? Mm -hmm. and because in a way, they're the pioneers that are ahead of us in technology mm -hmm. and in the future. They're the ones that are our elders in a sense mm -hmm. because they have nervous systems that have imbibed it, so they're different. And um, I found that when you were reading that um, book about the future, human mm -hmm. being, nature won't be the same. Mm -hmm. and it was kind of scary to me mm -hmm. because I have... I have trouble learning how to use my iPhone and <laughs> computer, and mm -hmm. as I age and my memory is less, I feel more and more obsolete, but I figure, and confused, mm -hmm. because I figure, well, I think that older people have something of value to offer younger people, mm -hmm. just like they have something to offer us, because we're kind of a bridge from the past, and we've learned certain things, but I'm just kind of confused about what that is that we offer and what we have to learn from them and I think one of the things Common Wilk offers is a place to talk about these things but I would like maybe the Commons and Bolinas could do more of it or something some intergenerational 
talking, mm. um, exploring these issues of what we can mm. offer each other and learn mm. from each other. Thank you. But I found your whole thing so moving because it touched on so many different areas that are right. difficult. And thank you. Other comments? All right. Yeah, I thank you for making us think, which I always love. Um, but I was sitting here um, thinking about um, being a teacher forever, um, that education for me has always been a verb. But you don't get there. It's something that you strive for, something that changes all the time. And by this conversation, I realized that um, community is also a verb, and, and a very hopeful one to me. And, and our trip to Washington and coming back and being involved in uh, community in Bolinas where people are getting together and talking about hope and help for people beside themselves in some random way seems to me a really active way to heal and I, I just realized that through this conversation that um, if that's happening and if anything positive that you can pull out of this, this time that we're in, it's that. And so thank you. Thanks for giving me that thought. Um, I was gonna, my name is Leslie. I work at a university, so I'm still around young people. And one of the things that, it, um, and we have been recently talking about Generation Z, which is uh, the newest generation versus X. And one of the things that they've been talking about, so these are folks that it's in the last two or three years we're starting to see at the college level. They're very practical. And that's what I see with the students I work with. And so the conversation around fear and hope I don't see that played out in their conversations so much um, as fear um, or hope. What I hear is this kind of sort of practicality of what is it that I need to know, how do I make a difference? So I think maybe that ties in with your piece around hope. But um, the piece that they're most concerned about is their inability to communicate because of um, the iPhone because of the short message, because of the short quips. So I actually think the idea of intergenerational conversations is a really nice one and a really good one. Like how do we get them together? I get to enjoy the privilege of those conversations with students every day because I'm still there. But um, what they're seeking from my experience is the sense of a deeper communication or deeper conversation they might get in a classroom but they don't get between their peers necessarily over lunch. So I mean, I, that's for me an interesting thing that has to do with how is technology actually changing how we as community talk to each other. That's really helpful. Let me just add to that, that uh, one of the reasons Oren uh, Schlossberg um, is leading our work on intergenerational dialogue uh, and is working with these uh, younger people uh, is that we uh, we find that dialogue with them enormously productive. And um, I feel that that, broadly speaking, that generation of younger people is the generation that 
I've been waiting for for a long time. And I think that practicality and um, the other thing that's fascinating to me about them is um, that they're typically not dealing with cynicism. Well, let me take that back because Oren gave us an example of somebody who, who uh, you know, was really trying to figure out how to hold it. And that's true. But also a lot of them... Uh, in the, the 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 ones that I've met that are in their mid to late thirties, I would say, are quite hopeful. So I, I mean, you can't generalize, but the, it's truly interesting how these different generations hold it. And so, my particular take as a seventy-three-year-old person. I don't generalize from that at all. I'm just up here talking to you about how it looks to me, you know. But um, I'm so grateful that others find better places. You had something you wanted to say. Thanks. I was just going to share a few kind of random thoughts. I really appreciate your talk. Fantastic. My name is Bill Barton. Um, <clears throat> I first started out in psychology at Gladman Memorial Hospital <clears throat> in the early 70s, and we felt so... Working with adolescents, we felt really lucky to get some kids in the full circle. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that was really a plus. And I want to thank you for that. Last night, I had a nightmare about a cell phone. <clears throat> I've never had one before. <laughs> and uh, so I'm with three friends, and somehow we're going through <clears throat> all these beautiful, exotic shops in Berkeley for some reason, <laughs> looking at everything together. And then I realize I've lost my cell phone. <clears throat> And so I separate myself from them, and I go back to this restaurant, and sure enough, the cashier had a cell phone. Mm. Tremendous relief, but my friends had gone on without me, mm. and I started using the cell phone, and it was sabotaging me. <clears throat> I could no longer, it would not dial out, and I couldn't. <laughs> so it was a big anxiety dream, and I kept trying to use the phone, and I... It was like I was being sabotaged. What a dream. <clears throat> I woke up. Um, another thing I wanted to suggest was um, I joined the Quakers when I was 16, and I just recently went to a talk at the Berkeley Quaker meeting. This was a tremendous time to support the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Mm -hmm. They go in and they meet with congressmen and they make direct impact. And they really believe that it takes person to person to make change. Another thing I wanted to mention was um, <clears throat> I have my son home on spring break, Sam, who's up at Humboldt State getting his master's in sustainable economics. And <clears throat> he suggested we've been watching MSNBC ritually every night. And I'm realizing I'm carrying around a certain depression about the situation. And he said, Dad, have you watched uh, Saturday Night Live? <laughs> so he brought that on uh, the night before last, and we watched clips from the last few weeks, and I felt so much better. <laughs> so I think humor is an important is part of hope. You know, that can really free us up. And that was tremendous change, so I'm going to continue to watch those. <laughs> Another thing, I, when you mentioned ways, for some reason I had the image, uh, we've all been using ways, I think, some of us, but I flashed on lemmings. And the way where, how lemmings can 
suddenly follow the lead lemming go off the cliff. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I just had that image. I wanted to share that. And that's it. <laughs> Thank you Tom, very Thank much. You. Um, hold on just a sec. Um, I, I want to honor the fact that it's noon, and I want to let people go. My wife, Cheryl Patton, is with me here, and we've been living this together for the last 35 years. And Cheryl, I just wondered, as you continue this journey together, what your reflections are on this. Um, well, I, I, as you know, uh, and some of you here that know me know, I'm a very practical person. And so I wake up every morning, I work in toxic chemical policy and do a lot of science around it. And I, every morning I wake up and there's some new god-awful study mm -hmm. talking about the effects of chemicals on this and that. It's just brutal stuff that I, I rarely talk about, although he asks me. I mean, be careful if you ask me. <laughs> I will carry on to, uh, some link. But, but I'm very practical, and I'm always surprised that people aren't more engaged in what's possible to do. Yeah. That there's so much we can turn around. We can turn it around in a couple of generations easily enough. Mm -hmm. It just takes attention and thought and working together. And and I've seen it happen time and time again. Just being with somebody in a room and see the right person in a room talking to the another person who suddenly a light goes on and sees, says, yes, as a human being, I can change this or I can do this or we can do this. Whether it's working on toxic chemicals or climate change or bringing communities together so we can really take care of each other. Well, but how can we help refugees that are coming as a result of climate change and all the war policies? I, ju I just think that we don't have a lot of time to waste here. But if we're not working on climate change or toxic chemical policy or something like that, then we're wasting the air we're breathing. I'm just very kind of judgment, almost judgmental about that. What, what, what are we doing if we're not doing that? Because it's so possible to change things. So I have this kind of just always a kind of a fire of energy, just doing what I'm doing and admiring what other people are doing continually. So that keeps me from, or it's a balance to kind of that, that kind of first morning look at the science study and I'm thinking, oh, this is really brutal stuff here. But, you know, the, the fire continues and, and I see what other people can do and have done for centuries. And, and, and you know, you talk about the video games and the movies, uh, and I once had an art teacher saying artists can predict the future by what's coming, and I uh, by, what, by, by their work is showing what is actually in the future, and I, I thought that was true for a while, but when I look at the videos and some of the dystopian movies, I think they're, they're, they're designed to desensitize us to what, and, and, have, and, and encourage us to assume that this really is what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But if you're in other places in the world, in, in Europe, you don't see movies like that. You don't mm -hmm. see TV like that. Other cultures don't have that kind of projection about this is the inevitable and it's going to be rough, folks. So, you know, sort of order your cans of beans or whatever. You know, the, 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 their other places have a <coughs> sense of what's possible in the future. And we, shouldn't, we should be careful what we let into our brains about what is inevitable. Mm -hmm. that, that we don't necessarily, as you're ta talking about what's possible, have to be desensitized to the fact that we have a government that's intent on war, so let's accept war as inevitable. Mm -hmm. It is not. It's not. Thank you. So that's, yeah. that's where I live. And as you know, I keep a good, strong sense of humor about all this. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm going to close with a poem from Rilke from this beautiful volume called Rilke's Book of Hours, Love Poems to God, uh, translated by Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy, which I recommend to you all. And I just opened this uh, at random this morning. Only as a child am I awake and able to trust that after every fear and every night, I will behold you again. However often I get lost, however far my thinking strays, I know you will be here, right here, time trembling around you. To me, it is as if I were at once infant, boy, man, and more. I feel that only as it circles is abundance found. I thank you, deep power, that works me ever more lightly in ways I can't make out. The day's labor grows simple now, and like a holy face held in my dark hands. So if we could just have a moment of silence together. Peace, peace. So thank you for being with me for this first experiment and conversation with myself. I hope it... Uh, and uh, I'll probably do more, and hopefully I'll get better at it as time goes by, but uh, thanks for being here at the start. Um, if you can contribute to the new school, uh, there's a donation box outside, and we're infinitely grateful for your support. And I'll hang around for a little while, so thank you. You've been listening to a New School at Commonweal conversation with Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.